But I can testify there are principles in the Word of God that work. And the avoidance of such leads the church into issues. Have you ever driven through a paper mill town? I know you people in Georgia have driven through that. Anybody in Michigan, do we have that? I don't know. It stinks, right? Ain't nobody in here knows what I'm talking about. Okay. Let me just try. When you drive through a paper mill town where there's a paper mill factory, it reeks. But the people who live there have no idea that it smells because they've adjusted to it. And I want to say that in modern day church, it could reek. I had gotten used to the idea that moral failure and scandal is the norm. That is abysmal. And yet you just get used to it because it's so common. And so I'm asking us, can we lift our eyes off of what has become maybe normal in terms of what we think of when we think of church? And let's get back to the scripture as we walk through this series together. Matthew chapter 16, if you're already there, fundamental passage of scripture starting in verse 15. He said to them, who, Jesus, who do you say that I am? This is a question he asks his disciples. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Pause right there. I want to say something as we're reading this passage of scripture that the church that Jesus is building is victorious. I, I know that that's a stretch and a challenge for many of us to really believe that. The church that Jesus is building, not the man-made thing that perhaps you and I are used to, the church he's building is victorious. Now, what do I mean by victorious? I do not mean that we are coasting through life with no problems. You know, ask the Apostle Paul, ask Jesus himself if that was the case. No, there are going to be problems, but just like Jesus literally went to a cross, literally put to death by his enemies, no, by the people he was dying for, literally was put to death, he could not be held down. He, it, there, he couldn't be held down because he had power over death. Death didn't have power over him because he was entirely yielded to his father. And his father has power over death. And in so much as he was abiding in his father, death could not hold him down. And the exact same thing is true of the church. You and I are going to walk through problems. But in as much as we are abiding in the one who overcame the world, those problems can't overcome us. Sure, we can look like a beat dead dog for momentarily, but as we're walking with him, we will find victory. Now, having said that, this passage of scripture, Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? And as we just read, Peter has this amazing kind of uh, dangerous thing that he says. He says that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that is like, to, to say those words is, is a... a that's a bold statement to make. Yes, Israel was looking for, for a Christ to come, but who has the audacity to actually say it's that one? But he went above and beyond that. He actually said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Jews weren't looking for or believing for a son of God. They weren't believing that a human being was going to manifest as a son of God. That was blasphemy. 
Are you, are you tracking? That was, those were, you say those words, you're probably going to be put to death. That's the level of what Peter was just saying there. Blessed, he says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood. No man has revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That word revealed is the, it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which from where we get the English word apocalypse. And it literally would mean like an unveiling. If something is hidden under, behind a veil, it's the lifting of that veil so that you can see it. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you have had an experience of divine revelation. You have seen truth that no man could give to you. It had to come divinely. And he says, blessed are you, Simon John, because of that. Now look at what he says. And I say to you that you are Peter. Peter had just been able to say to Jesus who Jesus was. And in turn, as he was accurately able to speak by revelation of who Jesus is and confessed it with his mouth, that same Peter turns back to Peter, that same Jesus turns back to Peter and says, I say to you, you are Peter. You're not Simon, son of John. You are Peter. You are Petrus is the Greek word which means a, sm a small piece of a stone. You are Petrus, and upon this Petra, this rock, this boulder, this large stone. What large stone? Revelation. Upon this revelation, I will build my church. Catch that. How, if we want to be a part of the church that Jesus is building, it is people on earth having divine revelation of the Son of God to see who he actually is and to see into his kingdom so that we can see it and trust for it and believe for it and walk in it here on this earth. That is the church that Jesus is building. It is a church built on revelation. And the church that Jesus is building cannot be prevailed against. How do I get that? On this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We either believe that or we don't. But I have learned to trust the words of this Jesus. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church he's building. You and I have the opportunity in this life, on this earth, to be a part of that. It must have been around the age of 19, I guess, that this scripture leapt off the page and I saw the realities that I'm now proclaiming to you. And literally from that moment forward, I've left family, I've left, I've left opportunities, financial opportunities, I've, I've left America, I've moved across the world, I've lost friends, I've done all sorts of things in pursuit of that church. The building, being a part of the building of that church and everything I've left behind, let me assure you, it has been well worth it. To be a part of what this Jesus, this king, is building in the earth, which cannot be prevailed against. What option do we have on this earth that would be better than that? Is it going to cost you something? Absolutely. Let's put that right out there right now. It's going to cost you everything to, be, to, to follow Jesus. He is not concerned about what you're comfortable with. He's not concerned about whether it meets your standards. He's king. We are subjects. But he loves us. And he's victorious. 
he's worth it. The church that Jesus is building is built on revelation. And can I say that just as God gave Noah specific instructions on how to build the ark, and it floated, God gives us specific instructions to build the church for it to prevail. So, you know, we, we, I don't know if you've ever read that in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 6, but he, God gives Noah specific instructions. It's not like he just says, hey, Noah, build an ark. It's about to rain, the floods are coming, you need to build an ark. No, he gives like specific types of wood, the dimensions, where are the openings, how long, how wide, all of those things. He gives them very specific dimensions, and the idea is if Noah had kind of veered off and done his own thing, would it have floated? We don't know. Well, what makes us think that God is so concerned about the specific dimensions and materials used to build an ark and yet not concerned about how the church is built? There are instructions, non-negotiables, things of the New Testament that I would dare say that perhaps some in modern day, especially American church, we've wandered off from. We become so used to other models that we've, we, we don't even see it, don't even think of it, and yet just like that ark was able to save us, save those people from the floods that came across the earth, there are hordes of hell that are coming across the earth today, and the church should be the ones who are floating. Am I, am I making sense? We're not going to float if we're trying to do church our way. And so over this series, we're going to name some things that I've seen, and maybe I've even participated, and God help me, I hope I'm not participating in any way today. Some things that we've seen that have gone off in church and look back at the scripture. So the first thing, if the church, as we've seen, is built on a revelation of God himself, well, how does God reveal himself in the scripture? You go back, there's this thing called the law of first mention in, in hermeneutical Bible study. It is the idea that the first time a particular topic is mentioned in Scripture that usually sets the framework of understanding that topic for the rest of the way forward throughout the Scripture. Well, go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you see the first time that God introduces himself and identifies himself. If you want to go with me, John, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Godhead is revealed as a team in a partnership. So if we are being built into the image of God, this Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect representation of God the Father, and they're one, they are a team and a partnership, surely, well, we'll get there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, listen to this, let us make man in our image. Do you hear that language? Let us. That's first person plural. Let us. Not me. In our image. That's first person plural possessive, right? That's pretty good. Just go with that. Point being, this is not singular. God is revealing himself right at the beginning as an us, as an our, as, as a team, as partnership. In our likeness, and now li listen to what he, the original intent here of mankind. Let them have dominion. In other words, let the gates of hell not be able to prevail against them. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We were created in the Godhead's image. 
Let us make him in our likeness, in our image. We were created in his image, and God's original intent for man was to be like him, which means a partnership of different roles with a common mission. And all of our understandings of the church that Jesus is building, perhaps it even starts, other than starting with revelation of Jesus, it starts there. Church equals partnership. That's what it is. That is what the church is. Sometimes I can look at church as we've known it that is far more successful, whatever that may mean in America. It's not that. It tends to be a program. It tends to be this thing that entertains and draws a crowd successfully and gets people hyped up and pumped up. But is it producing heaven on earth? Is it producing that? That's what we want. Each member of the Godhead has different roles and responsibilities. So you don't have to turn there now, but let me just read 1 John 5, verse 7. Here is an elaboration of this Godhead. Obviously, most of you are well familiar with the Trinity, but let's just read a scripture to verify it. For there are three that bear witness, 1 John 5, 7, bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Word, the Word equal, means Jesus. If you look at Genesis, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, you'll see that. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, it says, these three are one. And a lot of people get messed up with that. How, what does that mean? And, and some of you know, like there's the whole egg explanation. You've got an egg. What is the egg? Is it the eggshell? Is it the egg white? Is it the egg yolk? It's all three. They are one. It's one unit. Three separate identities and roles, and yet come together in perfect oneness, even though they are distinct individually. Perfect oneness. Are you getting a picture of what church is intended to be? A partnership of perfect oneness. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, I don't know if I want to be perfectly one with some of the people in this room. <laughs> but by the grace of the one who died on the cross, forgiving all people and all manner of sin, if that grace is operating in us, we can start to see people through a different lens, and it actually begins to become exciting, the notion of being partnered together, me, an imperfect individual, you, an imperfect individual, and yet we find the perfect one is the common bond between us, and we partner not in faith in one another, but faith in him, and together by his grace, he's able to lead us into divine purpose together. The divine purpose that God has for me will not be accomplished only by myself. I don't care how much I pray, how much I worship, how much I fast, it, I need you. Every bit as much as a cell on my body, part of my arm, let's say, cannot just unilaterally decide, well, you know, I'm part of the, the body. I don't need to be just part of the arm. So I'm going to go be part of the shoulder next Sunday, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be part of the neck the following Sunday. And the Sunday after that, I think I'm just going to take off because, like, I need, I need this time with, like, just, just me and him. No, like, God has ordained for us to be planted in a place in his body with other adjoining cells together with us. And it's in, as we find our place in those around us and connect with them that this thing starts to work. So in the gospel, we see uh, each having roles, the three 
of the Trinity, each having roles the Father leads in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus. You see the Father, the, Jesus says that the Son can do nothing of himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. The Father obviously is leading, but the Son is, is obeying and he's carrying it out on the earth. And then you see the Holy Spirit being the key connector between the two. He's the, the one that comes upon human flesh and d- brings divine revelation and empowers humanity to carry out what they are seeing happening in heaven. Am I making sense? So each one has different roles, and yet they're all one, common in purpose. And let me, let me just ask ourselves a question, or actually let me just say, sometimes in unhealthy church today, church becomes a simple Sunday gathering. Even the expression, I go to church, is pretty foreign to the New Testament. How can you, who are the church, go to church? And we, and we, correct me if I'm wrong, we start thinking of church as this Sunday gathering. It's, we start thinking of it as a place that I can get my spiritual needs met so that I can be encouraged to enter my week. All of that is about me. It can be a place to be blessed. You know, I, I just feel good. I like that preacher. I feel good with the stuff he says. It uplifts me. I, I feel blessed. Not, that's not bad. I mean, we, I, I like for people to be blessed. We tend to look at church as a place where rather than a people who. But all of those things is not partnership. And so here's a question that I want to ask us this morning. Is my relationship with church more about what I get or about partnering with others for his purpose? Let's ask that, yourselves that question. Is, what, is, what is my main kind of thing that is my identity with church? Is it what I'm get, What am I going to get? It's important for all of us to get something, right? But we get so that we can become partner with others to give. So that others can get. Because we live not for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. Which brings us to this next thing. The church... If that is true of the Godhead, Jesus is building a church that is victorious, and it's in the image of Jesus, the Godhead himself, and the Godhead have, have, have identified themselves as a team, as partnership. The church, therefore, is a team or a partnership of elders, deacons, saints, and translocal team. These four things. Elders, deacons, saints, translocal team partnered together to spread the gospel. If the Godhead had a mission, which clearly they have from the beginning, they haven't just been floating around purposeless and aimless and figuring out they, ha- they know what they're doing, we're made in the image of that Godhead, then just like the Godhead has specific roles, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, the church has roles, and it has a common purpose that we are partnered together called spreading the gospel. If you'll open up with me to Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read the first five verses and just kind of anal- examine this. But can I say, as we're turning there, in your app, in your Bible, that sometimes we have seen in unhealthy church man-made roles. And I don't mean to be uh, arrogant, and I don't mean to be uh, critical 
but let me just name some things that we would be commonly familiar with. Pope. I don't see Pope in the scripture. I don't see Pope by name. I don't see Pope even by function as it's known, as a role in the church. Nowhere in the New Testament. Neither do we see cardinals. And some of you guys are like have something in your crawl against the Catholic Church, so let's stop beating on them. Let's, let's step on some toes here more locally. What about superintendent? I don't see it by name in the New Testament. We don't see it by function in the New Testament, depending on what you mean by superintendent. How about a pastor who is leading entirely by himself and is not part of any kind of a team? Don't see it in Scripture. How about a pastor who is hired by, or a deacon board? A deacon board who is hiring the pastor and has authority that is requiring the pastor to be accountable to them. Great intention. We need to hold, pastors need to be accountable. Not the biblical order. And we're going to see that over the next few weeks. Or how about the other way around? You've got pastors who are top-down, aren't, I nailed that one. How about congregational vote? We in America love it, right? You know, the voice of the people and uh, democracy. Do not see it anywhere in Old or New Testament. There is a church that Jesus is building patterned after heaven. And we want to look at that. And if you look at Philippians chapter 1, you see all four roles in one place here in this very first verse. Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Who are Paul and Timothy? Well, I can tell you one thing that they're not. They are not based in the church of Philippi. They don't live there. They planted, or Paul planted the church, but he doesn't live there. It's not, it's not his church family home. It's a church that he planted, therefore he's translocal. Translocal team. Paul and Timothy, that's the first group. Translocal team, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the number two saints. What are saints? Saints are anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus, who have repented of sin, who've confessed, and who have confessed Jesus as Lord and have become born again, have received Jesus into their lives through faith in Christ. They are saints. You following? So saints does not mean anyone who attends a church. You know, you can go to a church. You know, there's a whole thing. You can, just because... Being in, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than McDonald's. Being in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Is that too worn out? Being, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Right? I'll stop it now. But, but the scripture speaks of saints. Saints are, have been born again. They are They've been born again by the Spirit. They have the kingdom of God inside of them. So you've got translocal team. You've got saints to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops. This is the third group, bishops, which we're going to find this term, and I can't get too deep into it now, every place it's mentioned in the New Testament Scripture, that original Greek word translated as bishop, it's episkopos, is always interchangeable with the concept of elder. So we can use interchangeably. It's just a different idea of the same function, same role. Bishop literally means overseer. It's part of the function of being an elder. So the translocal team, saints, bishops or elders, and deacons. Four roles right there. Paul didn't just kind of like randomly decide to name these, 
groups and just kind of, oh, yeah, I think I'll greet them and them. No, he's aware of pa- divine pattern and design. All Once you understand this, you start reading through all of the book of Acts, all of the other letters, and you're going to start to see that there is a pattern of these four roles. Now, we're going to get next week into these four roles and elaborate on the idea of each of them, which is incredibly important to all of us. And let me make it very clear. Everybody, whether you're a bishop, elder, whatever, deacon, translocal team, everybody is a saint. There is no hierarchy here. Different roles. It's not about control or the, the real ones, and then you got the really small ones, we call them saints, but the big shot ones, we call them bishop. No. Different roles. Everybody's a saint. And the saints, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, are the ones who primarily do the work of the ministry. Not the hired professionals, the saints. That's why we are here this morning, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So we're going to get into more of that next week. But in unhealthy church, sometimes it can tend to become a group of individuals rather than a united family together on a mission. Let's go on to Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 2. So he's greeted in verse 1, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You may remember we said that the church is a team of elders, saints, deacons, and translocal team who are partnered together for a purpose, which is to spread the gospel. It's all about the gospel. And what we just saw right there, almost like a thesis statement for this letter to Philippi, the Paul's letter to the Philippi, that he is thanking God for their fellowship in the gospel. That's like a key theme throughout the rest of the book of the letter to Philippi. Fellowship in the gospel. What does that even mean? Fellowship. Some of you Greek nerds, some of you Bible nerds would know the original Greek word that's translated typically as fellowship. Does anybody in here know it by any chance? Come on. Come on, bro. You can always count on Bob. Koinonia. Exactly. Koinonia. Did I get one from, uh, from Raynell? <laughs> Raynell says Rodney knows, <laughs> which I was thinking the same thing. Koinonia. And, uh, and oftentimes we think of koinonia, translated as fellowship, as kind of like, you know, we've got this more formalized gathering here that's happening right now, and then we're going to, you know, pray and we're going to close and we're going to go get coffee afterwards, and that's the fellowship time. We're having fellowship. Christians love to use this word. Oh, we're having fellowship. And, and it's not wrong to say this, but koinonia, the original real idea of this word, means partnership. It means joint participation. It is the exact same idea as the Godhead saying, let us make man in our own image. It is we do something together. We all invest together to accomplish a purpose. Now, the English word fellowship, about to get nerdy on you all over again, would suggest this idea, two fellows in a ship. Paul, who laughed, Bob, Paul the apostle here is thanking the church in Philippi for their fellowship, 
joint participation, partnership in the gospel. They're being two fellows in a ship for the sake of the gospel. Anybody ever been in a kayak or a canoe before? We got a few. Or, or a rowboat, a small, you know, dinghy or whatever. And, and you know you kind of push off the edge, you know, the, and, and there's that moment where there's, it's no longer touching the ground and it like wobbles, you know, and you have to be super careful getting in. And then once, if you're in there with another human, the two of you are partnered. If one of them starts acting weird, they could tip that boat and they don't, it's not just the weird one that gets wet, both of you get wet. You share mutual risk. There's a sense of we have left the safety of the solid ground, and we are off together, partnered in the same thing, all in, mutual risk, uh, mutual investment, and we are both headed together in a specific direction. Is that making sense? That is fellowship. That is the idea of church. Not hanging around and having coffee. Hanging around and having coffee is awesome. I make sure that we have it every single Sunday. Not the full scope of fellowship. Being together with mutual risk and leaving the safety of the land and saying, oh, I'm going to get in. Once I'm off, I'm not back there anymore. I'm stuck with this dude. That's church. And you aren't just stuck with this dude. It might even be able to say the very boat that you're in, perhaps, is Jesus. That's what you're sharing together. You are headed off in a destination on this earth together, investing everything. My friends, the church that Jesus is building, if it is as magnanimous as he said it was, that the very gates of hell can't prevail against it, then the cost, the price tag, the what it is worth giving up to be a part of is worth it. Yeah, there's risk. Yeah, there's discomfort. So what? I think Jesus probably experienced some risk and discomfort when he got on a cross. And what are we thinking that this earth of fo- earthly life following him is going to be just comfortable? But it is so wonderful to be a part of what he's building. So that's the idea of koinonia, fellowship, but fellowship in the gospel. It's not just fellowship. It's fellowship specifically in the gospel. That's the destination that we're headed towards. And sometimes... Can I just say, and again, I, I maybe, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I, I really don't want to come across as I'm being critical by saying w- unhealthy church things. I just want to point out some things that are unhelpful so that we can see what needs to be addressed. And one of those things is that unhealthy church tends to become preoccupied with building itself. It becomes preoccupied with the success of Sunday service, usually measured in numbers how many people do you have how big is the you know financial coffers of the church that's how and if you don't know that just trust me because i've known a lot of pastors bob knows the same thing you go to these pastoral fellowships not within the ranks that we partner with in ncmi at all but these other places it's this is the way the conversation goes oh praise the lord brother nice to meet you where are you from detroit oh that's good yeah and you pastor what church border city church how many are in your church I mean, how many full-time pastors do you have? That's, that's the measure. Tell me one chapter and verse in all of the New Testament that be, is preoccupied with church growth. I'm, and let me make it clear. If we're spreading the gospel, 
that does lead to church growth, but church growth is not the thing we're shooting for. We are shooting for Jesus. And if we are abiding in him, we're doing what he wants, which is taking the gospel at great risk and discomfort to help make sure everybody in our generation can be saved and a part of what he's building. That's what we're doing. That's the goal. Tyron Daniel, who leads the NCMI team, would say this. Success in the kingdom cannot be counted. It must be weighed. You cannot numerically count success in God's kingdom. It's the how much of Jesus is present in this thing. If Jesus is there, it's going to bear fruit. It may take a while. It will bear fruit. And the fruit that comes from Jesus is fruit that remains. We don't want to be a flash in a pan church and have success as defined by American Christianity. We want, I mean, Jesus said this, abide in me and you will bear much fruit and fruit that remains. Abiding in him. If we can get a church that we together are abiding, I believe we can bear fruit. So what is fellowship in the gospel? Well, it's not just being preoccupied with building a Sunday service. It's Rather, what it should be is, is, is having our corporate gatherings, if it happens to be on Sunday, that's cool, Sunday service, is for equipping, building people into a team who are partnered to spread the gospel. Everybody tracking so far? Jesus' church, gates of hell can't prevail against it if it's the church he's building. Church he's building is built on revelation of who he is. The Godhead reveals itself as a team, a partnership with different roles who are partnered together as one on a mission. Therefore, the church Jesus building is a church of different roles partnered together to accomplish his purpose. And what is his purpose? We're going to end it here. Ooh, we need to quickly end it here. What are you laughing about, Paul? What are you looking at your watch for, man? Fellowship. What is this fellowship in the gospel? There is a four-part pattern to Jesus' ministry. And once again, forgive me, I'm already sounding like a nerd all over again, but a four-part pattern to Jesus' ministry. This is gospel, what I'm about to say. You read all four gospels, you're going to see this very simple pattern. And if it's Jesus' pattern of his ministry, surely it must be the pattern of the church. And in fact, we know it's the, supposed to be the pattern of the church because Paul and the rest of the apostles followed this exact same pattern throughout the book of Acts. Are you ready for what it is? The pattern, the sequence, the goal, the, the ministry. Here it is. Number one, take the gospel and the spirit of God to where they are not. Now, I know some of you are already struggling with this because you're like, you know, God is omnipresent and he's everywhere. How can you say where they're not? I'm saying where human beings exist who have not yet received the gospel and as a consequence have not received the infilling and indwelling of the, of the spirit through the rebirth. The first thing that Jesus did before anything else was took the gospel together with the spirit to where they were not. Number two, of those who respond to the gospel in faith and want to become followers, Jesus started to disciple them. Not everybody's going to receive the preached word of God. 
but some will. Jesus, what did he do? He made disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says, and seeing the multitudes, that means the crowds, the people who were f- kind of around Jesus, who were interested in Jesus, seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. Why is that significant? He saw the multitudes, but he decided to go somewhere where the multitudes wouldn't necessarily follow him. Who would follow him? Those who had decided that they're going to go with him wherever he goes. I, you tracking? He saw the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and what happens next? And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. What does he do with his disciples? Verse 2, then he opened his mouth and taught them. To the multitudes, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. He demonstrated the power of the kingdom by working through the Spirit of God, uh, by performing healings and miracles, signs and wonders. But those who responded in faith and became followers... He discipled them by teaching them the kingdom. Why? Because he was going to transfer, to confer, to convey that very same kingdom from himself to them. Can I tell you an exciting piece of information? His mission for you has not changed. He is wanting to teach you and me so that he can convey upon us a kingdom. And that kingdom reigns. Reigns over sickness reigns over hell, reigns over every power of the enemy that he sends upon this fallen, dark world. That is how we as the church become an ark that floats when the floods come. It's because, not because of our goodness, it's because the kingdom is come on earth in his church just as it is in heaven. That is the goal. So he discipled, and then... From those disciples, he appointed certain ones as leaders. Not hierarchy, not better than, just some need to be leaders so that he can move out physically. It was expedient that he physically left this earth so that he could hand over to the church, and some needed to take on his role as leader, human leader. He's the leader, he's the head, but there needs to be human leaders. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, then he, Jesus, appointed twelve. He did it. He did it. And in today's kind of uh, leadership-sick church where leaders are like the biggest problem in the church, we start to try to form doctrine of not having leaders. Why? Because we don't trust leaders anymore because they've hurt us, and I get it. But we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Jesus is the one who appointed the leaders. He appointed 12 that they would be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Paul, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, did the exact same thing. He plants churches, he's discipling people, and he does not leave that church until there are elders appointed. Acts 14, verse 23. So you've got taking the gospel to where it isn't, discipling those who become followers, appointing some of those disciples, training them, raising them as leaders, and then fourthly is to send this new group with its new God-ordained leaders out to go repeat the whole process. Take the gospel to where it isn't. Disciple those who respond to the gospel. Some become appointed as leaders. And then send them to go do the same. And send them to go do the same. And send them to go do the same. Jesus says this in John 20, verse 21. After coming back from the dead and blowing, breathing upon his disciples, those very same 12 that we're talking about, and he breathes upon them and he says this, Peace to you. 
As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Anyone in here think that you as a follower of Jesus, a child of God, haven't been sent just as much as Jesus was sent by his Father? Because according to that scripture, we all are to be sent. Now, can I take it one step further? And we're going to close here. Paul, the apostle, this wonderful, amazing disciple of Jesus, writes two-thirds of the New Testament, plants churches. He writes this letter to the ch- believers, the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians. And I just want to ask you to please pay attention to this, what, two verses, one verse, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. And I want to ask all of us to hear it for us as a church this morning, as though Paul were writing it to us and the branch, to hear this as Paul's message to you as the branch. Paul says this, for from you, so let's pause right there. We could say for from Border City Church, or we could say for from the branch, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia, and that's the region that this church was in, that would be like saying, for from Border City Church, the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Metro Detroit, or we could say of the branch that the word has sounded forth not only in Tattnall County, and Achaia, which is the adjoining region. So Border City Church, the word has sounded forth not only in Metro Detroit, and we haven't even gotten there yet, but also in Windsor, Canada, Ontario, Canada. Or if you're in the branch, you could say not only in Tattnall County, but the Savannah, Georgia area. Carry on. But also in every place, which would mean literally around the world. At the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter also chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, your local city, Judea, your region, Samaria, an adjoining region, and the uttermost ends of the earth. And here's Paul saying the same thing. Herein lies the call of the church to spread this gospel to our region, adjoining regions, and even into other places wherever the Lord might open doors for us. Your faith toward God has gone out, listen to this, so that we, the apostolic team, Paul, the one who planted this church, so that we do not need to say anything. I don't know if you're catching that. Paul planting the church in Thessalonica, the idea is that where once there isn't even a church in Thessalonica, that there would one day be a church that they would take on the mission that Paul started so that he doesn't even have to continue. They have taken the baton and they have run with it. Is that not what Jesus did? Is that not what Jesus did? He made disciples, handed the baton. Now, boys and girls, you run with it. I would want to say, as far as our involvement with the branch, and perhaps I could maybe even say my involvement, I don't know, with with Border City Church, our job is done when a church is partnering to get the gospel to those who don't yet believe. Make disciples who come to faith. And take this gospel to other regions, starting new faith communities who will replicate the process over and over and over. And what's the whole idea? 
is that is Jesus' plan to cover the earth with the gospel. That's how it happens. You're never going to cover the earth with the gospel simply by preaching the gospel and getting people saved. They have to be discipled and be brought into the mission and to be partnered together because it takes a whole church to get the whole gospel to the whole world. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You want to know what Jesus is waiting on or what the Father is waiting on before sending Jesus? That everybody has heard. That's it. It's not just, as I said, evangelizing. It's discipling people into mission. So I just want to uh, say a couple things to you guys out in the branch. We are, as, as you've already heard, we're starting this series, the church that Jesus is building, and we've kind of introduced some things that we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. And so over there in Cobbtown, you guys can hear these messages on the website, bordercitychurch.com, on the messages part of our website over the next uh, the three Sundays after today. Uh, but can I say, do not do that in place of being together there in the church building with the church partnered together. That is, uh, if you want to hear more and continue to track this journey along with us, that's cool. I also want to say some things to the branch and then to some things to all of us. Uh, down there in the branch, what does this mean? How do we respond? What now? How can we take steps into this? I would say you already know, I believe, that Rodney and Nita are going to be starting what we call a community group, which basically is something that is getting out of the church building and building more family relationship across a meal outside of kind of an organized church organizational gathering and into something as authentic and, and real as a home. And they're going to be doing that twice a month. Uh, is it first and third Sunday? When? It doesn't matter. They'll confirm the details. But if we're going to be the church that Jesus is building, we cannot accomplish that just in our Sunday gatherings. We have to be a family on mission. And I want to encourage you guys to be a part of, of that. Uh, to both churches, Branch as well as Border City Church, as Minda mentioned earlier, um, well, in the branch, they're going to be doing, Rodney and Nita are going to be doing some training on the opposite weeks of the community group. And here, Minda mentioned that we're doing like what we call discipleship. And we've opened that up to everybody. That is a critical, both of those are critical ways that we're going to be equipped to partner together and be a part of a team that is fulfilling what it is that we're talking about. And so, I kind of don't want to sell that on you because, in fact, Jesus, when he talked about discipleship, he kind of said, you want to be a disciple? Okay, well, this is what it's going to mean. you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that is what it's going to mean. I would say, if you have in your heart, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, not of Rodney and Nita, not of Paul and Minda, Jesus. And I want to be able to make disciples, and I want to partner together to get this gospel out there I would strongly encourage be a part of that discipleship and training. Um, yeah, there are commitments that are required, as Minda said earlier, but it's going to move us into this partnership that we're talking about. Okay, I'm going to uh, pray, and I almost did go a whole hour, and I'm, you know, I mean, I actually jokingly said to somebody behind me that I'm going to go an hour, and it's been 53 minutes. So, uh, Father, forgive me. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> 
So I'm just going to close in prayer. You guys can join uh, with me over there in Cobb Town if you want to. Lord, we do.